There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to The Free Lunch with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, good to be back here again for another week's episode. It is. Looking forward to today's chat. Yeah, and this is episode 30 already, which is remarkable. Time flies when you're locked up. When you're locked up. Yeah, exactly. I was trying to think of something witty around the number 30. I, I couldn't really think of anything other than... I had my first kid when I was 30, so that was a thing. Anything interesting happened to you when you were 30? Oh boy, not that I can recall. That was a long, long time ago. (laughs) Well, anyways, here we are, episode 30, and last week we talked about current headlines and factors of return like value, and it leads directly into our conversation today, which is based on risk or the perception of risk and how that relates to perceived risk tolerance, actual risk tolerance, and a little question here. Do you need a financial therapist, which is something we'll get into a little bit? Interesting. Kind of an interesting segue. But why are we talking about risk today? Well, I guess we're talking about risk because of things like historic low interest rates. And a question we got on our webinar we did a couple of weeks ago from one of the viewers was, in a time when interest rates are so low, should you even own things like bonds? And that's a question we've had recently. It is. And we talked about before, if you're not going to own bonds, what are you going to own to replace them? Well, exactly. Now, the answer to the question to the viewer was, well, his question was, should I be maybe borrowing from a line of credit instead of taking on more risk in my portfolio in the short term? And the answer to that was, well, I guess it depends on what the interest rates are, the borrowing costs, and what the rate of return of your investments are. But the question I get is, if bonds are paying so little, like as a real life example, last week, I saw a bond issued to the marketplace from the old country, the old country being the province of Saskatchewan, our roots. You got it. And it was a five-year provincial bond paying 0.8%. Ooh, that's exciting. Yeah. So it almost rounds to zero. It does. If you're in it for the 0.8%, you're not going to see much action on the portfolio over the next five years. So I get the question, why own this thing? Why not go up the risk scale a bit and collect things like a higher dividend from a stock or, I don't know, a different form of fixed income that's maybe unsecured or just a higher risk company that pays more. And that kind of makes sense when you think about it. But we want to dig in today about what is risk. And Greg, did you ever watch the movie G-Force? I did not. You didn't watch G-Force? Never heard of it, in fact. Come on. This was a staple for road trips when my kids were young. It was a movie about these guinea pigs that were superheroes. And the female lead guinea pig in the movie makes a statement about her male counterparts. In it, she says something like, men are like government bonds. They just take way too long to mature. (laughs) I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Just kind of funny. Anyways. The one thing I guess is just when we talk about risk, I guess what we're talking about is uncertainty. And uncertainty is all around us, whether we're talking about financial uncertainty, 
physical risks. There's all sorts of things that can go wrong out there, and we deal with that every day. Exactly. But what we want to start with is the two fundamental ways to describe risk. So risk in the modern world is perceived and acted upon in basically two fundamental ways. The first way is that it's feelings refer to our instinctive or intuitive reactions to danger. So to me, this is like in caveman days when we had to be worried about a saber-toothed tiger stalking us while we're out collecting breakfast or whatever. That would be risky. That would be a risky experience for sure. The other side to it is more logic, reason, and scientific deliberation. I think to me, that's more around what our current investing strategies would be is we understand that there's risk in being invested, but perhaps we don't want to take anything more than just the risk of being invested versus the risk of an individual position. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, you bet. It's just a better way of understanding the two forms of risk. So one is sort of like a feeling and one is more of a logical debate with yourself over how much risk is relevant to you. And talking about risk, there's this whole element of risk perception because risk and risk perception may be different things. Risk perception is more of a subjective judgment that people make about the characteristics or severity of a particular risk. And so you sometimes hear this used in reference to like natural hazards and threats to the environment or health. So things like nuclear power. And there's been a lot of theories proposed to explain why different people make different estimates of the dangerousness of risks. And there's a few different sort of families or theories that have been developed. One is psychological approaches through things like heuristics and cognitive biases. And we're going to be talking about those in a little bit. There's the anthropology and sociology approaches, which deal with things more like cultural theory. And lastly, they talk about interdisciplinary approaches that talk about social amplification of a risk framework. And again, so what we're talking about here is subjective judgments that people make about risk. There was a paper written way back in 1969 by Chauncey Starr, and he used what he called a revealed preference approach to find out what risks are considered acceptable to society as a whole. Okay. And these revealed preferences models assume that the preferences of consumers are revealed by their purchasing habits. So the researchers assumed society had reached an equilibrium in its judgment of risks. So whatever risk levels actually existed were acceptable. And basically, one of the major findings was that people will accept risks 1,000 times greater if they're voluntary. So for example, driving a car, which as we know, obviously entails many, many risks, but they're willing to accept those risks far a thousand times greater than if they're involuntary. So let's say you're living near a nuclear power plant and the threat of a nuclear disaster, that threat, even though it may not actually represent any greater risk in reality, would be perceived as a much greater risk because it's involuntary. You're not actively participating in the risky behavior. Where I look at that is in flying. As you know, I have a bit of a fear of heights. I'm not afraid to admit that, by the way. I wouldn't say that. I have a great respect for gravity, as you like to say, versus a fear of heights. But anytime I've been on a plane with my kids, I'm quite comfortable. I sit back, I'm relaxed, take off and landing doesn't bother me. Turbulence doesn't bother me. And I remember my daughter saying to me, Dad, I don't get it. Like, you won't go up a, I don't know, a four-story building and stand on the roof, but 
you'll get on this plane and you just look really comfortable. And the only way I could describe it to her was I realized that when I get on that plane, everything is out of my control. And I accept that versus standing on the edge of a four-story building. Well, that just seems stupid. (laughs) Exactly. So when we talk about risk, we look at risk management and there's these basic concepts that we talk about. And the risk management plan really depends on who the stakeholders are. So in this case, it'd be investors and what the investors' risk, appetite, tolerance, and threshold are. And we need to understand these concepts because they're not the same thing. All risks are not created equal. A risk can be either an opportunity or a threat. And in an opportunity risk, as you discussed about heuristics earlier and you'll get into, there could be a positive effect on the projected outcome when you look at risk as an opportunity But when you look at risk as a threat, well, of course, there's a negative impact. So I guess in the plane simulation, I'm looking at the opportunity risk of getting me somewhere warmer during a cold winter month, which is not something we can do right now. Sadly, that's right. So the way I would look at it in investment portfolios is this thing called get rich versus a lose everything portfolio. So you can definitely have a concentrated portfolio of a small number of stocks And there is the opportunity to bring you riches by doing it that way. But there's also the threat of losing most or everything when you have a small number of investments with a high concentration to them. You and I have seen this many times over the years. Exactly. One of the things, and I know you'll get into this, one of the things is just when you think about, some people think about risk as well as risk and everything. And we know there's upside risk as well as downside risk. One of the ways I like to look at it is more in terms of consequences. Obviously, the consequences of a positive outcome by buying your favorite stock, those are good consequences, and we can all easily identify ways to deal with that. You can go out and buy yourself something nice or whatever it might be, but the consequences of having a negative outcome are much greater. And so when we talk about risk management, it's like, well, how do we balance those two sides off against each other? Well, I think it comes down to the attitude of the person who's looking at the risk. Some people may want to accept risk and others just want to avoid it altogether. Analyzing the risk attitudes of each investor individually is probably more necessary in regards to coming up with a risk management plan when you're looking at investing anyways, not necessarily standing on the edge of a four-story building. As I just said, that's just stupid because the consequence or the outcome in that scenario doesn't outweigh the benefit. But We're all human and we all have these different risk characteristics, I would say, of us. And the three characteristics we talked about were basically divided into three categories. So risk appetite, risk tolerance, and risk threshold. So let's just talk a little bit about what that is. So risk appetite is hunger. It means like how hungry are you for risk, which sounds kind of funny, but it's the appetite or the degree of uncertainty an individual is willing to accept, basically in anticipation of a reward or an outcome. Some people just have no appetite for risk, and therefore, over long periods of time, their investment portfolio would look much different than somebody who had a higher appetite for risk. Exactly. That's right. And again, for those people, it's like, and appetite is probably an excellent word to describe it, because as you say, some people are hungry to take on more risk in anticipation of the potentially high reward. And others are so nervous about the potential negative consequence that they're not hungry at all. 
That's basically risk appetite. Risk tolerance is different. So risk tolerance tells us how much an investor can withstand. So having a high tolerance means that they're willing to take more and a low tolerance means that they're not. And it shows a risk attitude of investors in measurable units. So I think that's the biggest difference is you can say somebody has a high risk appetite, but their risk tolerance can be quantified. Gotcha. That's basically risk tolerance. Where you see this in our world is oftentimes when people go into a bank or a financial institution and they're asked to fill out a questionnaire. I remember filling out these questionnaires as a younger guy. And of course, everybody, when the market is up, everybody gravitates towards having a higher risk tolerance. And then when the market sells off, then everybody gets to actually really revisit should they actually have marked that questionnaire as high. I always love those questionnaires because they say, oh, would you be willing to withstand a 10% or a 20% downturn in your portfolio and still maintain your investment strategy? And I always found that so theoretical because there's one thing to say, oh, sure, 20% doesn't sound that bad. And then you look at your portfolio and it's actually down 20%, let's say because of a sell-off in the market. And it's a very different reaction and feeling. It can hurt. And even when you do the math, this is a little aside, but just for fun, if you looked at a portfolio that went, I don't know, down 20% in its first year, up 20% the next year, down 20%, up 20%, down 20% and up 20%, many people think that the return would be zero, but the return is not. The return is negative because of the way math works. So let's talk about risk capacity or risk threshold. We call it risk capacity, but people that work in project management would call it risk threshold. But basically the risk capacity comes from when you do a financial plan and you've identified the goals that you want to accomplish and to achieve those goals, there's an output. It says you need a 4% rate of return to accomplish those goals. So risk capacity is just identifying how much risk do you really need to get 4% or 5% or 6%, whatever your number is. So those are three different things. That risk capacity is an interesting one because as you say, we've got some clients who are lucky enough to have accumulated a significant amount of wealth. And when you look at their long-term plans and goals, they could basically reach all of their goals with a 0% rate of return, meaning they've saved up enough money that they actually don't need to make another penny. And while some of them may still want to invest because they feel like they need to stay ahead of inflation, for example, or something, they actually don't need any more money. Whereas other people, when they're planning for your retirement, if you're younger or a young family, you need a 4 or 5% rate of return, whatever the plan dictates, in order to achieve those long-term goals. And so risk capacity, interestingly, it might be higher for people that have less assets available to them than others, which seems a little counterintuitive. Well, I think that makes sense. It's kind of like when you scan what retirees are looking for versus pre-retirees when it comes to outcome. What's the number one thing that pre-retirees look at is how much money do I have? How much money do I need? What's the number one worry of people that are well into retirement? What do you think it is? Having enough money. Health. Health. Well, that was my second choice. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. But yeah, isn't it interesting because that person or those people, if they've identified that their bucket is big enough and they're going to be fine financially. They don't need to take on a bunch of risk. So their risk capacity might be quite low, even though their risk appetite might actually be quite high. 
Yeah, exactly. Right on. So basically to summarize that little segment is you need to understand the difference between risk appetite, risk tolerance, and risk capacity when constructing a risk management plan. And the risk management plan really, as I said, comes from your financial plan. So complete the financial plan. It will give you or your advisor the outcome that will then direct what should the asset allocation be of the investment strategy based on what the capacity is required. But Greg, there's something that gets in the way all the time. And we had Carl Richards on, I don't remember what episode it was. It was quite a while ago now, but... It's a while ago now, yeah, that's right. And Carl wrote that book, The Behavior Gap, and in it, he identified rate of return of the market and how if people stayed invested, they probably would have done all right. But the problem was not the market return. The problem was how investors behaved during market cycles and how they were out of markets at different times and in markets at different times. But you talked a little bit about heuristics. So tell us about that. Let's get into the heuristic side again. And we've talked about heuristics a little bit in a previous podcast as well, when we talked about behavioral economics. And heuristics are just mental shortcuts that people use. So these are shortcuts that allow people to make decisions and solve problems quickly and efficiently by basing those decisions on experiences or things that have happened in the past. And the what's called the affect heuristic really just references current emotions or feelings. So how fear, pleasure, surprise, et cetera, can influence decisions that people make. So again, it's a heuristic. It's a mental shortcut that people make based on emotions or feelings. And that emotion comes from different words that are used to describe the feeling? It could be. So when you look at it in psychological term, the emotional response or affect plays a lead role in coming to those decisions. But it's not a conscious process. It's a subconscious process and basically just shortens the decision-making process and allows people basically to function with having to complete an extensive search for information, let's say. So that's where the mental shortcut essentially helps people make decisions. So the affect heuristic, and it's shorter in duration even than a mood. It occurs rapidly and again, involuntarily in response to a stimulus. So for example, somebody's reading the words lung cancer, that would usually generate an affect of dread while reading the words, say, mother's love would generate a feeling of affection and comfort. The affect heuristic is typically used while judging the risks and benefits of something like trading a stock, for example, depending on the positive or negative feelings that people associate with that. Kind of the equivalent of going with your gut, or as we've heard from some advisors, my spidey sense is tingling. Which is absolutely ridiculous to (laughs) actually trade securities based on your spidey sense. Where I see this today is in the headlines. Let's look at what the headlines are these days. One day it'll say something about the US election and coronavirus and the market's down. And the next day it'll say something about the US election and coronavirus, but it's sort of phrased a little differently and the market's up. Well, and it's interesting because when you look at sort of how the affect heuristic affects people with regards to say stock investing, if somebody's feelings toward, let's say a company are positive, then people are more likely to judge the risks as low and the potential benefits high. Whereas if their feelings toward an activity or an investment or a company are negative, they're more likely to perceive the risks high and benefits low. So example, let's talk about people's attitude towards Apple, the company. People, they use Apple phones, they're sitting on their Apple computers, they've heard how well Apple has 
performed as a stock over the last couple of years. And if someone says to them, hey, what do you think about buying shares in Apple? They're going to perceive it as a low risk with potentially high returns or potential returns. And if you ask somebody about investing, say, in energy stocks right now, they see what's happened with energy stocks and any investments in energy stocks over the last year. Of course, the results have been quite negative. They're going to see that as an extremely high risk activity with potentially low reward. And those decisions are made without the benefit of looking at price earnings multiples or price to sales or what's happening in global markets, et cetera. Those are just gut feelings that people will have, will assign a risk evaluation to that particular choice. And how it relates to investment management is those things that are out of favor, be it a factor or a company or whatever, the expected return of that security is actually higher than the one that is deemed to feel safer. Exactly. And as we've talked on other podcasts and things, I mean, listen, the interesting thing is when stocks or sectors like the energy sector are beaten up because of low commodity prices and global economic slowdowns, which affect demand for those things. It's true that the risk might be higher, but on the other side, the potential reward is much higher. And so making that link of risk and return is not something that shows up in that affect heuristic. It's interesting. There was some earlier studies, we talked about risk perception. And some of those studies showed that feelings of dread were a major determiner of public perception and acceptance for a whole wide range of hazards. We've been talking about stocks, but look, for example, the way the public judges radiation exposure from nuclear power plants, as I mentioned earlier, that's highly dreaded and far riskier than radiation from medical x-rays. Or what about even getting radiation at the airport or going into a sporting event from one of those machines? Exactly. Nobody even questions those. Nope, that's right. And so when experts in risk analyze and assess those issues, i.e., risks of radiation from a nuclear power plant as opposed to an x-ray, they would make exactly the opposite assessment than most people have. So as it turns out today, in today's world, terrorism actually has replaced nuclear power, is at the top of the list of widely dreaded risks. Interesting. It's not something we think about every day, but that it's out there. Let's just have some fun with this. So if we're talking to an investor and they said, I want to invest in XYZ company, and we said something like, Well, the way that they behave is like a terrorist organization in the marketplace versus the way that company behaves is that they're a leader of their marketplace in everything that they do. That investor is going to determine very quickly which way they want to go with that investment. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about the affect heuristic in investing. We did talk about how people might make judgments about the potential for investing in a particular stock or sector based on their feelings about those stocks. And again, as we said earlier, those affect-based evaluations, they're quick, automatic, and they're rooted in some sort of experiential thought that basically is activated prior to those reflective judgments. So sometimes how you frame risks will affect how people judge risk. So for example, it's interesting, but there's risks framed in terms of counts So for example, and you brought up this example when we were talking earlier. So if you say, well, gee, there's 300,000 patients with COVID currently in Canada, that sounds like an extremely large number of individuals, which it is. And it seems much larger 
than if you expressed exactly the same number by saying, well, about 1% of the Canadian population or slightly less than 1% of the Canadian population contracted COVID, which is the same number. Well, it's still 300,000, but it just it doesn't sound that big, under 1%. And that impacts how people perceive risk, therefore, just by the way it's framed. And companies know how to market this. I know when I went back to school, we were doing a marketing class and we were talking about the difference in something like, I don't know, selling something 50% off versus a buy one, get one free. Those types of words or how it's framed actually dictate which one will sell more. Or in an extreme example, we were given, it was like, well, what if you had two products and two companies selling the same product? One company sells it for $5 and charges zero for shipping. And the other one sells it for zero and charges $5 for shipping. The net result still costs you five bucks. But the one that charges zero to buy it, but charges you the shipping cost, actually would generate more sales for that company. Interesting. So I'm not sure how that relates to investing, other than maybe when we look at it, when and we're going to get into this this month because we're going to get the recommended holding lists come out at the end of December for the next calendar year. And when we've looked at recommended holding lists in the past, the way I would sort of bridge this is that it has a list of stocks. They attach an expected return for the next 12 months to that stock. And so if you have two companies and one says the expected return is 40% this year, and you have another company that says the expected return is 4%, well, which one's going to generate more attention? And obviously the feelings that you have thinking about a 40% return on your money are much different than a 4% return. And so you'll gravitate towards those recommendations. This sort of leads into, there's been an advancement in this field of financial therapists, of all things, which is something that's come out. There are programs where people can be trained to become a financial therapist. We won't spend any time on that today, other than to say that, look, 10, 15, 20 years ago, that type of job didn't really exist. But neither did things like, I don't know, play therapy, art therapy, music therapy. So I guess, Greg, this is supposed to be an investing show, but we're talking about therapy. (laughs) (laughs) But why not? Well, we want to make it clear to investors, like, look, this isn't easy stuff. When you are surrounded by the noise of headlines of expected returns and all the various industry jargon, it can be very overwhelming. It can be. And picking up there and maybe taking a slightly different tack, as we said at the beginning, risk basically is uncertainty. And in investing is investing in uncertainty. I mean, we have certain expectations, as you and I have talked about. I mean, over time, we expect stocks to outperform cash, for example. Over long periods of time. Over long periods of time. And over long periods of time, we expect certain types of stocks, say small company stocks, to outperform shares of large companies. Those are expectations over large periods of time. But the near future is very uncertain. So I was reading an article This is by Howard Marks, who's the founder of Oak Tree Capital. And he's an interesting guy. He's written extensively on uncertainty and decision-making in uncertainty. And he's just got kind of a summary of the world we're living in, in terms of investing. Basically, he says, he's got a few points here. The world is an uncertain place. And in many ways, it's more uncertain today than at any other time in our lifetimes. I mean, Most of us were not around during the 1918 flu pandemic, so I think it's safe to say that this is an extremely uncertain time we're dealing with. He points out few people know what the future holds much better than any others, because nobody has the capacity to 
capture all of the things that are going on in the world, whether they're political, geopolitical, again, health-related with COVID, et cetera. And very few people are able to gather all that information and try to make any kind of reasonable prediction about the future. And yet, investing deals entirely with the future, which means that as investors, there's no way we can avoid making decisions about it. We have to make decisions. Let me interject there for a second. When I've been going through portfolios with clients, we talk a lot about what happened in March and how the stock market fell 35% in, I don't know, 14 days. And the way I like to describe it is that it actually makes sense because stocks are priced based on the future cash flows of a company or the expected cash flows of a company. And when the economy came to a complete stop, nothing was being made or sold or produced for a short period of time you would expect the cash flows of that company to go down and therefore you would expect the stock to go down. Exactly. So I don't know if that fits in there. Well, it does. And we've talked about this. I think we talked about this when we were talking about the great financial crisis. Nothing great about it. 2009, exactly. (laughs) And that is that people that predicted the ultimate death of the real estate market that was supported by ninja loans where you could get a loan to buy a house without having a job or any assets, things like that. Many people predicted that that period of time would come to an end, that eventually those mortgages would go bad, which of course they did. And many people predicted how bad those mortgages would go. What a lot of people didn't predict was how widespread those mortgages were spread throughout the financial system worldwide. And so when those mortgages went bad, then all of a sudden, all of the structured products around the world that were based on sort of combining all of those mortgages into packages of mortgages, they all went bad. Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. And there was a very real possibility that the financial system was about to completely implode. So while you might have predicted what was going on in the real estate market, you might not have extrapolated that to a complete collapse of the world financial system. And so, of course, the markets went down. But what the markets also, or what people couldn't necessarily predict is, well, how much money would be spent by the governments, whether the Federal Reserve Bank, in terms of monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus, in order to deal with that. And the hundreds of billions or trillion dollars that was spent sort of to mitigate the bad effects of the collapse of the financial system actually resulted in the markets rebounding subsequent years and in fact led to the greatest 10-year returns on the stock market, I believe, in history. In history, the best return in history. That's right. Yeah, from 2009 to 2019, basically. So those kinds of predictions are too big for anybody to make. And when you talked about how when cash flows, of course, were predicted to drop precipitously back in March when essentially the world shut down for COVID, what maybe wasn't built into that drop in prices was the fact that, oh, okay, well, the the US government and the US Federal Reserve came up with like a $3 trillion stimulus package. And when you put $3 trillion back into the economy, that's going to help. It's going to help the companies, it's going to help the individuals and savers. And so again, there's just so many decisions or so many factors that you can't possibly predict. It makes it difficult. And yet, as Howard Marks points out, but we still have to make some decisions about how we're going to invest. And so there's a lot of uncertainty, but what we do is we understand our limitations in terms of what we can accurately predict 
And to a certain extent, we look at, well, what has happened in the past? And therefore, what can we expect long-term in the future? And that's really all we've got is the past as a guide. And so getting it back to, well, with all of this uncertainty and all of this risk ahead of us, what do we know for sure? Well, we know that in the past, investing in stocks has provided better returns than investing in cash or treasury bonds. And we know that investing in certain types of stocks like value companies or small companies have resulted in better returns in the long run than investing in larger growth type companies, higher priced companies. So again, in the end, we're never going to know exactly what's going to happen in the future, whether it's five months or five years. But over the long term, we have kind of an indication of what might happen and we have to take those risks or make those decisions to take those risks. So how does Howard Marks wrap up his commentary there? Basically, what he talks about is you have to accept the fact that we can't make predictions about the world. And he himself quotes a couple of people that have said things about that. One fellow, Neil Irwin, he says, it would be foolish amid such uncertainty to make overly confident predictions about how the world economic order will look in five years or even five months. And 250 years ago, Voltaire said, doubt is not a pleasant condition, but certainty is absurd. And I think that kind of summarizes it. No one can be certain about the future. So there's always going to be uncertainty and we just need to find a way to manage it. So what we learned today, I think, is that, yes, risk is present. You need to have a risk management program built into your solutions that you come up with. You need to understand how much risk your appetite can stand the threshold of that risk, the capacity for how much you actually need to take on. But I want to address one thing before we wrap it up, is that there's this misunderstanding of risk, that just investing in high-risk things means higher returns. And that is not always true. You can't just invest in high-risk things and expect higher returns. That's right. And what I usually say to people is risk and return are not related. Risk and expected returns are related. And expected returns just means there's a whole lot of uncertainty around those. And generally speaking, the higher the risk, the more possible outcomes there are. You could get rich or you could lose everything. And that's the problem. And the worst one we heard, and when we had Don Rogers from the Alberta Securities Commission on our show a few weeks ago, was that if you ever hear something like, there's an investment that has a low risk and high return, then the advice we would give in that scenario is run. Get away from that. (laughs) It doesn't exist. There's nothing in the world that has low risk and high return, especially if they use the words guarantee. Right on. Right on. So listen, let's wrap it up here, Greg, for fun. What are you doing these days? What are you watching? What are you listening to? We've been watching a series that I think is probably at least maybe 10 years old called Parenthood. And of course, it follows four families or five families all related. It's a little bit of a modern family, a little bit more dramatic, possibly, than comedy. It's one of those things that make you realize what lousy parents we are when we compare ourselves to the parents they portray in that show. Yeah, why do that to yourself? I know, they're so perfect. (laughs) It's a pretty good series, and I think there's about six seasons, which can keep us going for a while. What about you? I just finished reading a book, a new book called Happier, because why not? During a global pandemic, you should read things that make you happy. It's pretty good. And I just finished the series Utopia on Amazon Prime. I don't know if you've seen that one. Well, we saw the first couple episodes and it was a little too gory for our taste. It is a bit gory, but the story is incredible. And now I understand that the second season hasn't been extended 
because the story actually is based around kind of what's going on today. It's like a pandemic that they're trying to avoid in the world. So obviously when this was shot, this was pre-COVID. And then my wife and I have been watching The Crown. And I have to tell you, I was very skeptical going into this. My risk appetite for The Crown was low, (laughs) but it's actually turned out to be a pretty good show. And we watched it and we enjoyed it as well. It's interesting to watch a biopic about people that are still alive and still out there for the most part. So interesting. Well, listen, let's get out of here for today. So thanks everybody for listening to us. Remember the only free lunch that you have is asset allocation and diversification and this show. Exactly. All right. Till next time. You bet. Thank you for listening to the free lunch podcast hosted by the CM group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Woodgundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Woodgundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.